Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Russian invasion of Ukraine raised the question, what were the implications for Eastern Europe? And the reactions in Eastern Europe have been interesting in part because they vary so much, with some leaders offering muted solace to Vladimir Putin and others arming Ukraine. So the topic this time, what is the future of Eastern Europe? And to discuss that, I'm joined by Susanna Zeleny, a Hungarian author, politician and foreign policy expert. She is the director of the Democracy Institute Leadership Academy for Central and Eastern Europe. She's just written a book on Hungary, called Tainted Democracy. So first of all, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And I guess Tainted Democracy tells us where you're coming from, right? Exactly. That's very much about Hungary. Yeah. And what in your, your position is basically a liberal position and you're disappointed with the way things are going. Definitely. I am very disappointed. So let's just talk through... Well, first of all, I think we should de- define our terms, what we mean by Eastern Europe. How, which countries do you include in that, in that term? Well, you know, Central and Eastern Europe is the countries which are today members of the EU, but are, were earlier part of the Soviet empire. So the Eastern Eastern Bloc, I would say. I mean, basically the Soviet Bloc, which was not part of the Soviet Union. Right. So, well, I mean, well, part of the reason I asked you was that you yourself used the, the terms there, Central Europe and Eastern Europe. And I, I, ne- I was never quite clear what the difference was, to be honest. I mean, is, is there a distinction in your mind? I think we call ourselves like Central and Eastern Europe, because Central Europe is also Germany and Austria. So this region, Central and Eastern Europe, is it's historically defined, but this is between traditionally and historically between Germany and Russia. Now it's like 12 countries, uh, if we don't count the Balkans. And, you know, these were historically a territory where a lot of small people, small nations lived oftentimes together. And this region was for hundreds of years dominated by, typically by the Germans or by Russians or oftentimes the Ottomans. So there is a, a specific political legacy of victimhood in in this region. And of course, a big part of this, these countries were under Soviet dominance in the 20th century. You, you, you used the, the term Balkans there as well. And I mean, that raises another issue, particularly with the sort of recent history of the Balkans in the you know, last 20, 30 years. Uh, does that mean, do you think that the Balkans are a distinct area which should be treated differently when trying, when trying to analyse what's going on? That you almost have the Balkans and then you have, as you put it, Central and Eastern Europe. 
Well, the Balkans is slightly different. First of all, because it has it's an Orthodox region, unlike most of Central and Eastern Europe, which is is Christian, and the Culturally, that means a lot of difference because because the religions and religious entities and their relationship to the state have big varieties. So in this sense, Central Europe is somewhat closer to the Western political culture. There were stronger uh, heritage or legacy of the Enlightenment in this region. On the other hand, also the Balkans was lengthily under Ottoman Empire. So that makes a difference uh, when when you speak about uh, you know country. It's not only political; it's also cultural. Yeah, I you know I, I reported from Romania straight after the revolution there, and I'm going to give you my very sort of impressionistic account and wonder whether it chimes with you at all. That the further east one went, I mean, if you start let's say in western Romania, in a, a city like Timisoara, which has a you know, large Hungarian ethnic Hungarian population. It at that time, anyway, was really quite pro-Western, pro-Europe, Western-minded compared to central Romania, which itself was more Western-minded than Moldova in eastern Romania. It seemed that as you moved east, there really were sort of lines, not on the maps, not in terms of countries, but lines you know, culturally, which did And there were sort of clear distinctions between people's attitudes as you went further east with a a more pro-Russian attitude as you went east. Yes, this is absolutely true. And as I said, it's also religious. It's also how far, you know, a society over, let's say, went through the 90th and 20th century, how nation states were formulated. Also, you know, how strong the patron-client system or individualism. So it's very very interesting how these various countries and its specific parts, because Romania, the Transylvania that you mentioned, was a for a long time a specific entity with a mixed population and mainly with Protestant, very strong Protestant culture, which is really different from other parts of Romania. So yes, these these make a lot of differences. And of course, this also makes some differentiation between the countries. There's also language and there are Latin oriented language in Romania. There are a lot of Slavic uh, language uh, countries. And for example, Hungary is completely unique. We are not, uh, we have our specific language, uh, which is related to the Finnish somewhat. You know, this also gives a kind of specific identity and and understanding of ourselves. So I think it'd be useful just before, yes, because this will be the bedrock of our conversation, if you like, would just be to understand those influences and, and the difference they made. So you, you've mentioned quite a few things there. Language, okay. That Then there's basically the Protestant, Orthodox and presumably Catholic distinctions. Yes, I think this, this goes back to how far, you know, when Enlightenment happened and when these countries went through the bourgeois revolution, how far they become westernized and when over the time. And I think this is somewhat differentiate this region from Western Europe, where the modern individualist-based state was created two, three hundred years earlier than in Central and Eastern Europe. This is something which we can also see oftentimes in the current culture and political attitudes. How far, for example, people, citizens, trust in themselves, how autonomous they are, or what do they expect from the state? 
or the churches or other kind of stronger entities in order to help them to get a, a proper living and solve their problems. So these are the major attitude questions which are interesting to study in more in depth. Yeah, and I guess another thing is the length and degree of Russian control, right? Yes, of course. Um, the, the, the Russians were present in this region in various uh, ways. And for example, in Slavic cl- countries like the Czech Republic or Bulgaria or Slovakia, there's a strong cultural influence from Russia. It's not the Soviet times, it's, it's earlier. There's a, often they find themselves close culturally to Russia. It's interestingly not the case in Poland, but that has very specific reason because Poland was divided over hundreds of years and a big part of it was under Russian dominance. So they have a different relationship to Russia than, for example, Slovakia, which was not under Soviet or Russian dominance. And that, of course, a completely different story that we were all under Soviet dominance for 45 years and it looked like a, a unified region, which was obviously not the case. And these countries could not really leave their very specific national identities because the Soviet system forced all of these people to, you know, believe in the same things and nationalism and anything what patriotism was was really pushed down. So, so it's not surprising, not very surprising that in the 90s, one of the big uh, surprise of the freedom of, of after uh, 1989 was that actually nationalism returned into this region. And like in, in uh, the Balkans, it, it went so dire that they, they went into war. Yeah, well, what's, what's so striking to me is that, that that Soviet period, which was, you know, the best part of 50 years, made so little impact. You know, as soon as the Russians had gone, everything was back to where it was. Well, it was, it's very interesting. Well, it was because it was a taboo period, you know. A lot of people were believed that their identity was not was not possible to live, and you know they just wanted to work with this. But of course, the Soviet dominance made an influence on the region, and for example, the, in terms of the role of the state, this very paternalistic way of thinking, how people behave as you know, as autonomous people or individuals, it's how important for them. So it's, it, there's a, there was a lot of, it's like, oh, many people believe that like, you know, 50 years was kind of non-existent. Interestingly, uh, some politicians like Viktor Orban tries to even recreate a Hungarian constitution in a way that we just don't count those 50 years, which is of course not possible because those 50 years were there and there are strong influences on societies and on attitudes, but it doesn't mean that, for example, in terms of identity, what you were referring to, it was a very active period. It, it wasn't. And of course, you know, who we are, what our purpose, what is our nation, what's our relationship to our neighbors? These questions were absolutely critical questions in the 1990s. It'd just be interesting to know, in that 50-year period of Soviet control, you know, the Western, well, not just the media, actually, but the academics, everyone who studied it, were pretty unaware of anything other than the Soviet orthodoxy. You know, that was the politics. It was the Communist Party. That was it. 
Now that that period has passed and we're through the other end of it, is it clear whether throughout those 50 years there were other political traditions that were being maintained, maybe by very small fringe groups of people meeting privately? Were there nationalists and liberals and others who were trying to keep their tradition going under communism? Absolutely. Uh, and this, this can be described in each and every country according to how repressive the regime was. But, for example, in, in Hungary, where for the regime it was very important after 1956 revolution that Hungarians feel a bit better so that they don't go to the streets again. But there was some kind of very limited kind of freedom. And this Hungary was a test country in the Soviet bloc also providing some individual freedoms and also some cultural freedoms. So, for example, some authors and intellectuals could start to write about, you know, our relationship to our nation, our minorities, ethnic minorities in Transylvania, which is part of Romania. And also there was a kind of more liberal opposition. And these people were not imprisoned, like in, for example, in Romania. Which, is, which was much more repressive regime, but they were kept under certain control. Obviously, they could not publish, they could not teach, but there were these, these smaller circles of intellectuals who started to act and work and talk. And actually, these groups become, at the end of the 80s, the, the core groups of, of the new political parties. Yeah, and it was quite interesting. You, you, know, you mentioned Romania there as being one of the most repressive regimes under Ceausescu. But actually, <laughs> at the time, it was because Ceausescu was so, such a sort of oddball in many ways that, that many in the West thought he, you know, he was the least loyal to Moscow because he was the least orthodox, can we put it like that? So, so when, when you look at Eastern Europe under the Soviets, which were the most aligned with Moscow and which the least? I think the most aligned was the DDR, the German Democratic Republic. So East Germany was obviously very important for the for the Soviets. It was a border country and there was Germany. But I think Czechoslovakia was also very strongly aligned. From the 70s, from the late 70s, or from the oil crisis, the communist bloc was already under significant economic struggles. The centrally planned economy does not really work. It started to show its negative sides. And during the 80s, practically in all countries, there were some kind of softening of the regime. This was the most spectacular in Hungary with the goulash communists. And Hungary was the first country which also issued bonds abroad because it needed money from the international market. And therefore, Hungary was not so poor than many other countries. I think that Romania, the Soviets did not have to push down a Roma, the Romanian Communist Party because they had their own, you know, dictator. So it's, it's, these, are, these are kind of interesting relationships. Yeah, there were differences in terms of the repression and the Soviet presence, but they were everywhere present with their army. And we, we have to be aware of whatever uh, soft the regimes were. This was always related to how much these local communist parties expected some kind of revolt. And 
when there was a revolt like in, in the 60, 68 in Czechoslovakia in, and 81 in Poland, obviously there was, there was a, a tougher repression, but also they always understood that you know, they have to give something to the people so that they don't go to the street again. Just one thing maybe worth mentioning is I, I saw in the press the other day that Belarusia, there's talk of Belarusia joining the Russian Federation in some way. And, and there was talk too of Bulgaria becoming a Soviet Republic, wasn't there? I, I did actually put that to the former dictator there, Zhivkov, who denied it strongly. But I, th- I, th- I think it may have been the case that that was discussed. Bulgaria was historically very close to, to Russia. But it never came to reality, and I think Bulgarians are pretty happy that they never that this never happened. Gosh, yes, I mean it would look so different now, wouldn't it, if that, if that had happened? Yeah. So, so right, let's get to the end of this Soviet period now. And you mentioned Poland, and there was the whole of the solidarity movement there. Why, you know, we, there was the Czech and Hungarian uprisings, but why was it Poland that broke it? The most unique feature of Poland is a strong presence of the Catholic Church and that the Catholic Church always kept some kind of autonomy under, under communism. It was also strong enough to provide some kind of safe haven for dissidents. Actually, this was a similar case also in East Germany, uh, where the Lutheran Church was kind of safe haven for dissidents, not at that scale than, than in, in Poland but somewhat some intellectual uh, dissidents could survive and act during uh, in, in this framework. So this is the most spectacular uh, difference between many other countries. For example, the church in Romania did not have the same function in, than in, in the Catholic Church in, in Poland. And of course, when this de- economic decline was more tangible in the 80s, Poland is a heavily industrialized country, so there was uh, and it, uh, there was real poverty in Poland. So, so the whole solidarity movement came out from from the workers' movement there, which could also be supported by a, a dissident intellectuals. And when these these group met, they they become you know also strong and also dangerous. And I think this is probably true for any other autocratic system that the real problem for the regime comes when intellectual resistance, which always exists somehow, meets with a bigger mass of workers or whoever, so the people. Uh, This was also the the pattern in 1956 in Hungary. Neither the the workers or or the intellectuals could could have done anything by, by themselves, but it was a moment when they met and when they could join their forces. And this was exactly the case in, in Poland. And, and they did it very successfully. And actually, they forced the Polish regime to start to negotiate with them at some point. So Poland became a kind of leading country. And much of the, the Hungarian transition in the late 80s followed the Polish opposition's stories. And also the Communist Party followed, actually. They, they were watching closely what was happening in Poland. And the Hungarian communists in 88, they really felt that they also have to start to negotiate at some point because they were really worried that the Hungarian opposition would be too strong and they would not be able to stay in control. So a couple of questions coming out of that. The first one is, you, you say the Catholic Church in, the, in, in Poland and the uh, Lutheran Church in East Germany played an important role. And the distinction there with the Orthodox is that the Orthodox Church, let's say in Romania and other places, 
was always with the state, whether it's communist, whether it's nationalist now, whoever it is, they're with the state, right? Absolutely. I think not all churches were always against communists. They could, oftentimes, they collaborated with, uh, with the, the, the regimes, political regimes, yes. Let's, let's just sort of get to 1989 then. Mm-hmm. And as the Soviet presence collapses and departs, which of the countries in central, let's leave the Balkans out of it, but in central and eastern Europe were the most ready to embrace the West? Or was it really very even at that moment that there was consensus really throughout that whole region that everyone wanted to look West? I think that people were watching the West. There were old people were watching, you know, the films, the Western films, the Western cultural music. This was all part of our life. And I think people just basically all believed that the life in the West is better. So I think that is one thing. The other thing, whether which country was more ready. And I think, you know, Poland started obviously uh, with a kind of large-scale resistance. Also Hungary followed it closely. And Hungary and Poland, most people don't remember, but we went through a negotiated transition. These two countries basically agreed with a, with a compromised transition with the then communist parties. Unlike all the other countries, they basically had this velvet revolution after the wall of the Berlin Wall. And that made a very big difference, not just because we were first and therefore Polish and Hungarians believed we are more ready, which was either true or not, but at, that was at least the, you know, the impression or perception, but also that our new constitutional systems were compromised with the communists and therefore were full of problems. For example, the Czechs and the Czechoslovaks, and then when separated the Czechs and the Slovaks, they made their constitution completely without, in, by the new political forces. They were not under any kind of constraint, so they are they have very good constitution. And this have now, uh, for example, uh, a consequence until today, because in Hungary, a constitutional system and the electoral system was not really good. But during the 1990s, there were not enough political consensus any longer to correct the constitutional problems. And this made possible in Hungary to have a winner-take-all system and basically allowed one party to make such a big victory like that Orbán's party. This is not the case in any other countries in the region because they're, basically their electoral systems are better and more democratic. Yes. That's so interesting because you know, in economics, I think probably most people now would say shock therapy, which was advocated by some in the West and which you know, was attempted in, 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 in under Yeltsin and in, in, you know, to some degree elsewhere. That you know, shock therapy is quite discredited, but you're saying shock therapy of the politics of the constitutions was better. Yes, I, I'm very much for shock therapy. Yes, because you know, it's also the whole society see the price for the change, which was not so visible in Hungary. Life in Hungary was not that specifically awful in the late 80s. And the difference between the past and the future was not so sharp. So there, some kind of cathartic moment was missing, which was there in every other country. There was a kind of clear sign of, you know, the past and the new life, which was free, but oftentimes very difficult because, of course, of the 
it was not because of the shock therapy. It was because the centrally planned economy collapsed and millions of people lost their job. And basically, it was a complete failure of the of the economic system. So the shock therapy was needed in order to consolidate the, the economic situation, to make some stability. In most countries where there was this very tough shock therapy, the second half of the 1990s were, uh, was already a period of growth. You, you, you think in places where the communists were held accountable, yes. it, it, it worked out better? Yes, I think so. Okay. And as people looked to the West. I mean, you've mentioned a number of factors. You know, there was the cultural factor, the TV, the lifestyle, all that. There was the economics, the uh, embracing markets and getting rid of centrally planned economies. There was the geopolitics, just getting away from Moscow. Of those three, which was the most important? Or would you say at that stage, they were all considered pretty much alike? Not uh, with the same uh, weight sovereignty from the Soviet system or, or Russia, because of the, the Soviet system also collapsed in 91, that had a different kind of weight. And I think uh, this is something that we, we can see today. So for example, it was incredibly important for the Baltic states, you know, which were part of the Soviet Union. I mean, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, they, they were European state, they all they were more closer to Poland and, and, the, and the Nordic countries than to Moscow. So the kind of upside of, of the revolution or transition was really very strong there. Also, for example, for Slovakia. Slovakia has never been an independent state. The Slovak people were always some kind of dominant, often time of Hungary, Hungarian kingdom for hundreds of years. After the First World War, they were together with the Czechoslovak, the, the Czechs. So Czechoslovakia was the creator of, of the post-First World War period under Benesh, who was a Czech, very talented leader. So when they separated from the Czech Republic peacefully, that was an extraordinary momentum for many Slovaks, who ever first, they had their own state entity. So these elements were really very important for some of the countries, but not necessarily for all of them. For example, in Hungary, we did not have this kind of thing. Even worse. Hungary went through a very turbulent 20th century history. It was a big kingdom in the 19th century. It was Austrian-Hungarian, the Habsburg Empire after, you know, 1864. But it collapsed with the First World War. So Hungary, a big Hungary, became small Hungary. A huge part, two-thirds of Hungary's territory was given to other states, which emerged from the First World War. So, for example, the kind of sovereignty for Hungarians was, was just really not as important, let, let's say, for neighbor Slovaks or for the Baltic uh, people. So there were big differences between how we perceived the upside of the democratic transition. And obviously, that, that I think it's it's very important element of, of the differences today. Exactly. So it's all fed through to today, which is what we'll get to at the end. That's why it's so important to sort of understand all these different trends and currents in, in, in you know, the modern history of these countries. So we're getting on now to the post-89 period, and there's this yearning amongst particularly young people throughout Eastern Central Europe to be part of Europe. There were European flags, and people were saying, you know, there were placards, weren't there, on the streets? We are Europeans. We are Europe. We love Europe. That kind of thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. Tell us now about how Europe reacted to this, because arguably the accession process to the European Union 
forced change, which was unimaginable, really, in 89. And, and, it, and it was done through the offices, really, of the EU. Yes. I think that the reaction in Western Europe was really not the same. I think it was what happened in Eastern Europe was really confusing for many Westerners. There was obviously a very strong moral commitment that Eastern Europe is now back in, in Europe and that this is how we saw our life. We were back to Europe where we always stayed. This was somehow the idea in the 1990s. But the European Union specifically was much more careful, partly understandably. They, they couldn't really see what they get. They really did not understand this region. I would tell you that I think it's still the case. There are still very limited understanding in Europe, in Western Europe, about this whole region. Despite that we are now the part of the EU for 15 years or more than 15 years, and there is a lot of exchange programs, but the core, the focus of the EU is still on the West. And I think this is part of the element of the resentment of what there exists in Eastern, Eastern, Central and Eastern European countries. Somehow we did not think that we were as much welcome by the West as we thought that we would require or need or hope. Are you saying that Western Europe basically didn't give enough resources to Eastern Europe? Or the, the, the phrase you used was didn't understand it. And if it didn't understand it, what didn't it understand? i tell you an example. I have three children and they went to, in exchange year when they were 16, to Western European countries. They stayed, they stayed a year abroad. My daughter went to Belgium and she studied history and, and the history map didn't show Eastern Europe. And this was a couple of years ago. So in the 2010s, Belgian history maps didn't show Eastern Europe. Europe for them was only Western Europe. This is what I mean. I don't think it's the sharing resources. I think the EU did quite a lot. And also I think it was pretty good guideline what the European Union provided to the Central and Eastern European countries how to join the organization politically and legally specifically, and also what are the economic requirements for the region to follow. But the mindset of the Western European population is just not, you know, aware. I mean, how would it be? You know, they, they, we were really a closed region for 50 years. So I think it's understandable. It's, for my side, it's absolutely not a blame it's a kind of factual thing that there are simply less knowledge about the culture, languages. Very few Westerners speak the languages of this region, while we do speak English and German and French. It was not a kind of equal exchange. I think it's understandable, but this is still a fact. And it gives some room for resentment for the region, what we see in these days, that Eastern countries and political leaders often express their hope that there would be more respect from the West, which is a bit of a ridiculous term, I think. But people do understand what it means. Well, I can see that obviously the East European youth would have known much more about West Europe than West European youth would have known about East Europe. And I, yes. and I guess maybe that's true of older generations too. But yes. uh, it seems to me that when you talk about respect, which you obviously don't really feel very comfortable with either, but I mean, part of this is, is just that because of the disastrous Soviet economic 
policies of, over those 50 years, Eastern Europe is, is far poorer and, and it will remain so for, for decades, won't it? I mean, it takes a long time to break through that kind of uh, poverty gap. There are some historians who say that it's not only because of the Soviet dominance, but this is just because this region is a periphery of Europe. Just like, you know, the South is a periphery of the core Europe, East is also a periphery of Europe, not for only for the last, uh, you know, 80 years, but for hundreds of years. So this is a state where we are, and we have to live with this. But this position... So there are political actors who can really build on this and can make politics sort of grievances and can self-pity. And this is something which people really like to follow. This is a, an attitude which I, I know from this region for long, but you can, you can generate political gains from victimhood and grievances practically in any countries. And this is what we are seeing, I think, in the last couple of years in Eastern Europe, which are very politically motivated and very, very harmful because it doesn't really motivate people to work stronger, to learn, to study, to ambition, a higher input for progress, but basically demand more on the basis of of grievances. Uh, This is a a social attitude which is already present in this region for a long, long time. And this is now completely revived by certain political forces and they are very successful with this, which is, I think, in long term, very, very negative for for these societies. I'm keen when we we discuss Eastern Europe, as as you're just doing, as a region that we also disaggregate it. And so let's take that that issue, self-pity clearly a theme of East European politics in the last, what, 10 years. Where is it most prominent and why? And where is it least prominent and why? That, that, that sort of theme of self-pity and victimhood. This is something that exists in people's own psychology and you can also build on it politically. I very much believe that this is a political game. It's there. It's kind of a negative element of people's attitude, which is often present. But you can build on it or you can not build on it. And what I see is that specifically since we joined the EU and the fact that we are the periphery and we we did not become, let's say, Hungarians and Hungary did not become like Austria, which is our neighbor countries. And most Hungarians visit Austria back and forth, which is one of the richest countries in the European Union. So we are not like the Austrians. We did not become like them. And we probably will not maybe ever. But, you know, it's just so easy to make uh, politics about this resentment. And what I want to say is that I think it's political and it's uh, used and exploited by political entrepreneurs and it should not necessarily be there. And Eastern Europeans can pity themselves, but they can also not pity themselves and they can do much better result if they don't do so because it doesn't get anywhere. Yeah, but what's the best example of not doing it? I think the Czechs maybe do a slightly better. Czechs are very close to the Germans. They, this is a more industrial society. The economic performance uh, in the whole region is the best in the, in the Czech Republic. Well, you could also do it in Hungary. So it really doesn't have very specific reasons why in Hungary, which was at least 10 years ago pretty well off in the region, it was not the necessity that political force grew up on, on resentment.
it was really a very negative scenario. And now we do also see it in Poland. But it was, uh, why I'm saying it's political, and I want to specify this, because in every, in every country in this region, there are more pro-European countries, and there are pro-kind of Eurosceptic countries, and they are typically built on resentment. So it's not only difference, or not necessarily difference between countries, but it's more difference within political forces, and they exist in all countries. Yeah, but you're sort of saying that you know, it may just be a matter of circumstances to where those forces are strongest and, you know, election results and leadership differences and so on make quite a big difference. I, I want to get back to the EU accession process, because it seems to me as an Easter, it's quite interesting, as an East European perspective, you're sort of saying Europe didn't understand Eastern Europe and there were these issues. Looked at from the West, or at least from what I could see, the accession process forced reforms which could never have been dreamt of in 89. I mean, those societies were so stuck in their thinking, their Soviet thinking, and there was so much reform to be done, legal reform, economic reform, political reform. It was a massive task. And without the carrot of EU membership, it, it could never have been done, could it? That's very true. All of our countries developed extraordinarily and not only until the EU membership but ever since. If we look at the, the facts, we are so much better off than 30 years ago. It's just uncomparable. But it, people don't think like this. You know, they don't look back 30 years ago. They always look uh, around uh, and the present and they look at the future and also the general and average data they are not interested in. Therefore, also the element of resentment, why I think that already in the 2000s, some kind of backlash in liberal democratic reform was a tangible. Maybe we didn't see it until the 2008 crisis, but they were there. And this was also because the word we were joining, the free word, this was not as it was, let's say, in the 70s or the 60s. There was already a very strong globalization going on in the 1990s. So when we entered the global market, we really had to compete with you know, the emerging Eastern Asian countries. So it was a very, very, very competitive environment. And many of our countries were, despite all the development we went through, were not just very easily able to, to join into this global competition. Also, there were very diverse economic models. For example, the Baltic countries, they, their model was how the Nordic countries were looking like, because these are their neighbors. And they, they're small countries, so they went very quickly to build their economic growth model on a knowledge economy. This is very different in, in Central Europe, in Hungary, at the Czech Republic, or, or the other regional countries, because we joined to the German-based economic environment. And the way how we could compete was that we started to develop companies which were, were serving the German machine industry and automotive industry. And this is a very different profile. So the, the education system, for example, was developed in a very different way. And this also resulted in a more stronger dependency on the German market, where our role in terms of added value is, is much lower than if, if we were in the you know, a knowledge economy. So, the, 
So there were various dependencies which were built up during the transition period, which created a kind of position for Central Europe, which reproduced some kind of inequalities, strengthened this periphery entity, uh, because the division of work between the Western European and Eastern European countries were just somewhat, you know, made stronger. This is why Viktor Orban can say that we don't want to be colonies, which is, of course, a ridiculous comment. But what he means by that and what people understand is that we have to still adapt and adjust all the time to the German economy. And it is a pattern of, you know, uh, independence uh, dependence. So these are the things which you can exploit uh, if you are a, a reckless political force, it, which would not necessarily be the same if, let's say, there would be other political forces in Hungary. Well, I, I'm glad you got on to Viktor Orban because I wanted to ask you about him. I mean, you know, you've written on Hungary. You're very familiar with what's happened there. And he is, in a way, the emblem, uh, the, the, yeah, the key example of what's happened. So he starts off in 89 as very pro-Europe, Western liberal. He's ended up as this very nationalist and increasingly pro-Russian leader. I mean, it's, you know, to many in the West, it's an absolutely inexplicable political development. Now, I think you've offered me, in the course of this interview, a couple of explanations, or maybe three explanations, as to why that's happened. One is, you just said, Hungarian resentment about its economic lack of parity with Germany. Another might be the greater Hungarian tradition in terms of politics and territorial control in Europe. And another may be just that he's he's good at this stuff and he's keeping ahead of the curve and he's just a sharp politician exploiting an issue. Which of those three do you think is most important in his development? Well, Orban is, a, you know, he's a, probably the most experienced politician in Eastern Europe. Uh, he's there for 33 years and he, it's he's in the fifth term as a prime minister. He thinks in a very complex way. And all these factors that you just listed are all true. Orban made, with incredible luck, a big victory in 2010, a victory which no one else since the Second World War had in Europe. Basically, with one party, he can change the constitution because with less than half of the votes, he can, he can get two-thirds of the mandates in the parliament, which is, comes from our uh, problematic winner-takes-all election system. So he decided in 2010, when if he gets to power with such a majority, he will keep it as long as possible. So he openly started an autocratic turn in Hungary. He didn't say it like this. He only told, called it, you know, as an illiberal system in 19, 2014. But he started it from the first day. He used the, the post-2008 crisis environment as a explanation for what he said. He, he basically said that 2008 crisis demonstrated that the liberal world, the liberal democratic system as such doesn't necessarily prove to be perfect. It's not true any longer that this is the best life we can live with. West is on the decline. East is on the rise. So if East is on the rise, he wants to be the side of the victors because he is a you know, he doesn't want to be on the side of the losers. So he started a politics which really gave up on a number of Western liberal democratic values. He also started a completely different 
foreign policy, which he called Eastern Opening. His aim was that he repositioned Hungary and repositioned Central Europe as a core of something, because he understood that if, until you are at the periphery, you have limited opportunities for maneuvering. But if you are in the core, you have more room. So to be in the core, he needed to balance the Western dominance with some kind of Eastern relationship. So this is what drives him. And this is a kind of additional thing. You know, he's a strategic and maneuvering uh, capacity. He really spoke a lot about how this region can be stronger uh, because we are the new Europe. You might heard this term that he called it new Europe. This is a term of Orban and versus the old Europe, which is which is tired, inefficient, plus in the 2015 crisis, the migration crisis gave extra dimension of this uh, narrative, saying that it's not just tired economically and not good enough in growth and not fast enough in changes, but it also, as a multicultural society, losing the identity of true Europe. And the East, Eastern Europe, is the real Europe. Is These are homogeneous countries. We can save the Christian heritage, which is a core of the European culture. So he basically built up very strong identity and ideology for, for the system he's, he's building, which is naturally an autocratic type of system, but it has a very strong identity. And this is something really resonate in the whole region. And this is why Orban is a, such a strong personality and and a lot of he has a lot of followers in many other countries, especially uh, on the right. There's one obvious objection that one might make to Orban. In 89, he you know, was one of the leading figures who wanted to get away from Moscow. He is now one of the leading figures who's getting closer to Moscow. Does he and his population, his voters, not see the risk of Russian control coming back. Orban himself was very anti-Russia still in 2007. He gave fascinating speech about that his party, Fidesz, is a, the new Western generation. He said, oil may come from the East, but freedom always comes from the West. So he really changed after 2008. And he changed because of, he thought the world has changing, but he's also changed because he had such a big power. So he wanted to control everything. And I think, well, it, first of all, it took him years until he somehow made understood his own people, his own party colleagues, who were all very anti-Russian, and his voters, who were rather anti-Russian, that the world has changed, and Russia is not such a big threat as we thought or which we saw Russia earlier. And we should have a pragmatic relationship to Russia. This is how he explained it to his own people. He always said that it's only business. This is not about politics, which is obviously not right. But that's what he actually sold. He also needed a stronger relationship to, with Russia because Orban built up complete new circles of around him, new oligarchs with, with a lot of state state subsidy. New companies were were emerging, and these companies bought significant part share of strategic industries in Hungary and this also includes the energy market. So there's a lot of people around Orban who have 
personal you know stakes in the in the energy trade the russian relationship become important for the hungarian government orban's government because of because of business and because of personal business because of orban also wanted to use the russian and the chinese relationship to maneuver to create maneuvering space for him vis-a-vis uh, -vis the west so he always as i said to stay in the middle of something now this this kind of attitude and politics worked pretty well and he really had a lot of benefit out of this until the war because you know the world is so interconnected that he thought he can he can make big gains he basically followed or tried to follow what he thought is the german model with russians now with the war we can see big differences because of course German company has strong interests, but Germany big and strong. So now Orban is not flexible any longer, but he still believes that he can extract some benefit from, from you know, how this whole war will probably end. And he maintains this tiptoeing or tap dance politics, which is really annoying and, and isolates Hungary on the European uh, arena. Isolates Hungary, you say, but uh, could, just for those who aren't following it like you are day by day and sort of moment by moment, which other East European countries have subsequent to the invasion of Ukraine uh, you know, reached out to Moscow, maybe not to the degree Orban has, but which ones have, have sort of tended in that direction? So the, the key issue with the Russian relationship is energy. Basically, Central Europe... Central and Eastern Europe, including Germany and Austria, uh, also lives uh, on cheaper energy sources from Russia, or at least that was the case until now. Now, it's, uh, there is a big difference in terms of diversification and quick access to other energy sources for countries which have uh, sea and can have, uh, you know, LNG. Uh, so, for example, Poland or Croatia or, or the Black Sea countries, uh, they could quickly change. Uh, it's not the case with, uh, let's say, the Czech Republic, Slovakia or Hungary, because we are landlocked countries and we have no access to other sources directly. So obviously, any kind of other energy sources is much higher. We have much stronger dependency on, on Russian energy sources. Uh, and th these are these are our troubles. But Orban is basically the only very outspoken person in this regard, even though often he represents other countries' interests, because Hungary has become much more dependent on Russia than it was 10 years ago. And it's not only by gas and oil, but also because Hungary, Orban's government, made a deal with Putin a couple of years ago, 2014, to build a new nuclear plant in Hungary, which was actually heavily resisted by the Hungarian opposition and, and NGOs, but still uh, they are doing it. And, and this, this new nuclear plant, uh, which has just started to, to be under construction, uh, is, uh, is on Russian loan. So it, there is an, an other extra layer of, of dependency on Russia, which is not a problem. Do you think this may come to haunt uh, Orban, you know, that uh, he, he can play on the victimhood, he's got the energy interests, he's uh, got the benefits from this relationship with Moscow, but he also has a population that, you know, resisted uh, Soviet control that uh, is uh, Western-minded in many ways. 
and uh, you know when it talks about its Christian heritage, it's, it's largely you know that's a connection with the West rather than the East. Uh, so when, when all those factors come into account, is 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 he ever going to lose? Is what I'm asking. <laughs> well, of, yes, of course he will because every everyone <laughs> loses yeah, everyone some, some time, but. <laughs> But the, the problem is that Hungary is not a democratic country any longer. So there are deeply manipulated uh, elections and it's not manipulated on the election day as many people would ex- uh, imagine. But it's basically, uh, Orban is uh, in power with the supermajority for 13 years now. He has changed the constitution 11 times ever since. He's changed uh, election rules more than 20 times in the last 10 years. Uh, they rule the entire media, public media, which is full of urban propaganda. There is a communication ministry uh, within the prime minister's office, which is extraordinary uh, in terms of uh, propaganda. I think most Europeans really cannot imagine how it looks like in these in these years. So there is such a huge media dominance because actually Orban regards media as a strategic industry. So there is also a lot of oligarchic investment in commercial media in Hungary. So they have such a noise what they create by themselves uh, that uh, that they can really dominate the public uh, discourse. And this time, the public discourse, what they, the narratives, what they create is, first of all, that all our economic hurt troubles are because of the European sanctions. And... Uh, that Hungary is not against you, you know, anyone or not pro-Russia, but it's for peace, which is a very interesting narrative, and you can hear it from many, uh, you know, radical right groups in Europe. And I think this is something which is coming in the future. Uh, the pro-peace agenda basically doesn't say anything about how to end this war. It just says that it wants to end it. Of course, every everyone wants peace, right? So it's a, it's a very uh, nice uh, uh, narrative. But basically, if we look at what it means, that would mean at this moment that Ukraine should give up some territories in order for peace. Uh, they don't say that Russia should stop, the, uh, stop this war. So this is very, very controversial. Uh, but it's very smart. Uh, it's really a spin in terms of uh, political narratives, because it's neither pro-Russia or nor anti-Ukraine. It's basically pro-peace, which is a kind of neutral thing. And of course, a lot of people like it. And and when Orban looks at uh, Eastern Europe and Central Europe, and even at the Balkans, uh, he sees some countries arming Ukraine, uh, which is way away from his position. Of all those countries he looks at, in the region, which one will he feel is closest to him that he's carrying with him? Well, Orban is very good in alliance building, uh, so he 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 separates things from each other. So whenever it's energy, he definitely tries to cooperate with those who have similar interest uh, than us, like uh, like the Slovaks, for example. Uh, it's also up to which government he's close to, uh, because there are some governments which are more friendly. Uh, some other parties are less friendly. Let's say there is a bit, lot of problem with Poland, which is a traditional partner for any Hungarian government because of in Russia war issue, they represent so different ideas. Uh, but in many other cases, uh, 
the Hungarian Fidesz government and the PIS government in Poland represent very similar views, uh, for example, of the future of Europe, which they say it should be a, a, a gathering of nation state and uh, softening the co competencies of a big super state Europe. I mean, it can be really similar to for many uh, you know, British people because these are typical Brexit slogans. So he always looks for uh, you know, allies uh, where they are possible. So it's, it's not um, obviously in many ways he is working with and for Germany. German relations are very, very important for us uh, because of, as I said, a lot of economic connections and there's a lot of, lot of uh, valuable invest German investments in Hungary. So although Germans do not want to be in bad relationship to Hungary because they have so much business here. So, so it's really, a, you know, a very opportunist uh, uh, government uh, which can build up relationship. However, in the European arena, Hungary is, I don't remember ever it was so isolated than in these days. So which takes us on to the, the last question. I mean, you've done a fantastic job taking us through the Soviet period, the European Union, the Ukraine war. And now I ask you about the future and not just Orban, but I'm, I'm really talking about the region now again. How do you see the future of Eastern Europe? What are the hopes you have? What are the fears? Well, the hopes, uh, uh, the hopes are that we can manage to get rid of our autocrats. It's really uh, a very upsetting uh, moment, especially in Hungary, but many other countries, little autocrats are emerging. It is a global trend, so we are not completely special. I think it, it, we are just more vulnerable because we are the periphery, whether Orban or whoever wants or not. We cannot change our position. We cannot change completely our cultural, you know, attitudes and a lot of things. Uh, we are here, and uh, we are we are uh, vulnerable, and we can see we can see why. So my my hope is that we we can make a better and more resistant democratic society and civil society and 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 pro European politics will be stronger in the whole region. Uh, which hopefully will happen. My fears are that we cannot live with the fab fantastic historic opportunity which the European Union membership offered to this region. We already talked about how much better we lived than decades ago, but we are part of the free world. We are traveling, studying, working wherever we want in Europe. And this is an extraordinary freedom. So we have never had this before and we won't get anywhere without the European Union. So obviously my worst case scenario is that we somewhat drop out of this and our political leaders just lose this fabulous opportunity. Thank you so much. You said at the beginning, before we before you started recording, that you're, you're pronounced like Zaza Gabor, who I've also got wrong probably. Why don't you pronounce your name for me? It's Zuzsa. It's Zuzsa. Yeah, so uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not even going to try and copy you because I won't do it as well. It's okay. So, so, so thank you very much for uh, taking us through, you know, your take on what's happened and, and where it's headed in Eastern Europe. Thank you very much for inviting me.